turn to Romans 11. And as you do, turn on your electronic devices. If you need a Bible, there's one in front of you and the chair in front of you. Uh, the story is told of a little boy in a small town. Uh, it went to the mom and pop grocery store in that small town. He was asking for a box of detergent. Uh, the owner was a little surprised, but he was more curious and surprised, so he asked the boy, why uh, do you need a box of detergent? And the little boy says, I want to wash my dog. And the, uh, the owner of the store says, well, son, that's pretty strong stuff for a small dog. Uh, determined, the little boy says, uh, that's, that's what I want. He's a mighty dirty dog. And so he pulls out of his pocket, dirty pocket, a wad of bills, throws them on the counter, uh, pays for it, picks up the detergent, and heads home. The next week, he shows up at the store, <laughs> and the owner notices the little boy and says, hey, how's your dog doing? And he, the boy says, oh, he's dead. <laughs> and the, yeah, the owner of the store is like, oh, son, I'm so sorry. I guess that detergent was too strong for him. Oh, it wasn't the detergent that hurt him. I think it was the rinse cycle that got him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ty, don't ever put soldier in the washer, okay? Um, what? What is your rinse cycle? What gets you? And then more importantly, what Romans 11 is asking, does God give up on you in the rinse cycle? And how would you know if he didn't? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Romans 11, selected readings from the one, the only, Will Lawrence. The scripture is this morning selected passages from Romans chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life. And what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. And then verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, 
Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant when I have taken away their sins. And verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> So, Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you ride on the wings of your word. We thank you that you show up in your word. You release your active personal presence in your word. And so we ask now that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give what we looked at last week, a genuine faith, which is real clarity to the mind and a deep realness to the heart of the things of which we look at this morning. O oh, uh, word of God, be near, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's a world-famous biblical and theological scholar named N.T. Wright, and he says, Romans 11 is one of the most difficult chapters to understand in all the Bible. Oh, just great. Great, right? I need a raise. I need a raise. I have now preached through Romans 9. I am now preaching through Romans 11, two of the hardest chapters in the book of Romans, two of the hardest chapters in all of the New Testament. So what's the big idea of Romans 9 through 11? Hopefully we've got it. It's two asymmetric ideas, right? We're looking for two asymmetric ideas that dominate the thought and the passion and the power of 9 through 11. God is the author of your salvation. We are the authors of our condemnation. Two asymmetric ideas that must be held together and not one of them could get lost or you spin off or your theological world spins off its axis into the land of the weird, okay? Now, last week in Romans 10, we asked, how is God the author of our salvation? How does God work and move in your life in real time and real space? How does he do that? And we saw that the answer was through faith. God works, God saves, whether you become a Christian or as a Christian, he works through faith. And we saw that this faith, faith says what? Faith says, I'm done with ascending and descending. I'm done with doing and dying. Faith is, we saw, was not irrational. Faith has clarity to the mind, deep understanding of real content. But it's also not irrational, or only rational, I should say. It has a heart reality that it hits home to the heart. The heart trusts. The Puritans would say it has light and it has heat. It's both are present. So God saves us or he works in our life through faith, but it's faith in the nearness of another. 
We saw that in the word, there's the person that's mixed into the word, so much so that Paul changes logos into rhema because he's trying to get at a reality that's, that's otherworldly. In the message of good news, Jesus shows up. In the simple vehicle of hearing about a person and a work, Jesus stands forth in his person and his work. And he speaks to you and he reveals himself to you and there's clarity to your mind and there's real deep trust in your heart. And so faith actually is an effect, not a cause. That's why in Romans 10, 17, he says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? Through the word of Christ. So in hearing a gospel message, a good news message, real content, in hearing that, Jesus stands forth, shows up, and produces change on the spot. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty breathtaking. So where do you go to find God? How do you know God's at work in your life and in the world? Where do you find him when you desperately need him? It's kind of like this. If God says, listen, I show up at the corner of 1st Street and 2nd Street. That's where I show up. But here's what we do. We go to Jupiter and Elm, and we demand that he show up. And we wonder why he's not there. And he says, I show up at the corner of 1st Street and 2nd Street. I show up in the gospel. The good news. All right. So today in Romans 11, though, the question is, can our authorship, so that was how God's the author of our salvation. Now we're going to look at how we're the author of our sin, death, and condemnation. Can our authorship of sin, death, and condemnation ever reach the point of no return? In other words, does God ever give up on you and me? For example, does he give up on Israel? Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? I mean, chapter 10 ends with, with uh, this statement, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How long does God hold out his hands till he finally drops them? Or how long does God finally reject those who continue to resist his invitations of grace? Look at verse 11. So I asked them, did they stumble in order they might fall? Better translation, did they stumble too far? In other words, can we reach a point in our authorship of sin, evil, and condemnation where we fall beyond God's reach? Here's the answer. The answer is through the strongest language possible in the Greek language. By no means. Twice he says it. By no means. So the answer is no. But the passage of 11 is about the four reasons why he says no. And then he applies them. So that's our plan. Our plan is no. No, he does not. God does not ever get to the point that as he continues to invite and as he continues to appeal, as he continues to reach out in grace, he doesn't get to the point of actually rejecting you, according to Romans 11. And we got four good reasons, and we're going to apply them. All right, so here's the first one. In Israel and our authorship of sin, death, and condemnation, does God ever give up on us? No. The first reason is the Paul reason. Look at verse 1. For, here comes the reason, right? I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Judah. Paul is saying, listen, 
I'm one of those hardened Israelites. I am a hardened Israelite. And then in Philippians, he says, I am the most hardened Israelite on the planet. And then in Thessalonians, as a Christian, as a writer of three quarters of the New Testament, as an apostle of the king of the cosmos himself, as the one who is probably the holiest man who ever lived outside of Jesus, as the one who is the greatest missionary, church planner, preacher, teacher, church leader, pastoral counselor that ever lived, he says, I'm the chief. I'm the chief of sinners. There's a list of sinners of the most notorious, the most epic, and I'm at the top. And God hasn't given up on me. That's the Paul reason. Now let's look at the Elijah reason. The second reason. Does God ever give up on us? No. The Elijah reason. Look at two and three. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah? I mean, Paul's reasoning with us. He's trying to grab your mind because he wants to get your heart, but he wants to grab your mind. He's going, think, folks, think. Let's think about Elijah. Let's think what was going on with Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they killed all your prophets. They've abolished your altars. In other words, there's nothing left. There's nothing left in all of Israel to show that you're here. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. The Elijah reason is this. Sometimes it seems like when you look through your perception, when I look at the world, when I look at relationships, I look at myself, I look at others, I look at what's going on in the church, I look at what's going on in homes and in the workplace and communities, I look what goes on in the United States, around the world. Sometimes when we look, it feels like God is not at work. It looks like he vanished, evaporated, and you're the only one left. This is when Elijah quit the ministry. This is where he flat burned it out. This is where Elijah quit life. Do you know what he does? I think he was either too scared or he was just too much of a moralist to actually take his own life. She said, God, you take me. Have you ever felt this way? Y'all, I can honestly say I have never met a pastor that hasn't. And I have rarely met an individual like all of us that hasn't. Rarely. Rarely. Because life is hard. Jesus tells a story about how God works. It's an incredible story. He says, listen, it's like a man who sows his seed and nothing happens. And he goes to bed and then he wakes up, pulls back the curtains and there is this massive crop all over his house. How did that happen? 
And what Jesus then goes on to say, he says, listen, this is the way God works. This is the way the kingdom works. God loves to work at night in the darkest places, in the deepest parts of the soil that you can't see, down in the human structures of the human heart, and in the deepest recesses of a human mind, in the most dark times in life, that's how he works. This is why Paul writes verse 4, right? But what does God's reply to him? What does God say to him? He says, listen, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Don't miss this. Elijah thought he was the only one left. And God said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 all around you. Reason number three. In Israel, in our authorship of sin, death, and condemnation, does God ever give up on us? The answer is no. Why? It's called the redemptive plan reason, and this is the majority of the book. This is verses 11 through 32. This is incredibly controversial. This is why I need a pay raise. This is two theological systems colliding. Have you ever heard of these systems? Dispensational system, covenantal system, dispensational theology, covenantal theology, two ways of seeing the world, specifically how to see the Bible, how to see Israel, national, ethnic, political Israel, how to see end times, how to see something called the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ, how to see this and all other kinds of fun stuff, how to see it. They collide here. And we're going to read the summary of it all. This is in verse 25 and 26. We're not going to look at every passage. You just can't do it. There's not enough time. Otherwise, it could be a Sunday school although I wouldn't want to go to it. But 25 and 26, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Here's the mystery. You ready? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So two things have happened. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening is happening until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Now notice what he says next. And in this way, these two ways, and in this way all of Israel will be saved. Okay, we got it. Let's go on to the fourth reason. Here's the redemptive plan. The redemptive plan is Israel and the rest of the world will be saved in real time and space together. Israel, and everyone that's not in Israel, which means Israelite, which is the rest of the world. Israel and the rest of the world, God saves through faith between the first coming and the second coming, together. Okay, now you got a choice to make. You got a choice to make on what we mean by together. There's the chronological choice, and if you are in the chronological camp, you need to get out your charts, you need to get out your diagrams, your timelines, and look for headlines and rapture themes. If you don't go with the chronological version of together, you go with what's called the comprehensive together, which means in this first and second coming, comprehensively, simultaneously, concurrently, this is how God works through Israel and non-Israelites and brings them to himself. Um, And then there's a third one, and this is where I am. It's a little mixture of both. Now, good people disagree on all these views. But since I'm teaching and I'm preaching, you're getting a third view. 
If you would like the second or the first view, there's a bunch of resources on the website of all these different commentaries and these scholarly works on Romans, and they'd be more than happy to lay out other views and even better arguments, okay? So let's look at the chronological. I say it's a mixture, right? That you have this sense of togetherness, first coming, second coming. God's at work in Israel and work in the nations at the same time together, and there's a chronological aspect to it, then there's a comprehensive aspect to it in this way. Got it? Chronologically, verse 11 and 12. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? Okay. Here, here's what one scholar says. I think it's wonderful. The scholar says, this is fascinating. <laughs> okay. Paul means that though many Jews believed, there was a lot of hostility to Christianity among the majority of Israel. If this had not happened, the early Jewish Christians would have easily concluded that the gospel was only for Israel, ethnic Israel. Do you see this? This is breathtaking. And there would have been little impetus to preach the gospel to anyone else. Christianity could have only been seen as a renewal movement inside Israel if this happened. This is how there the Jews' transgression means riches for the world. I mean, this pattern's repeated over and over in Acts, is it not? You got an apostle and a preacher, they go to a synagogue and they preach. Some Israelites believe. Many reject and become hostile, so much so that the preacher or the apostle goes to the Gentiles in the same town. And lo and behold, many believe. And what's the result of all of this? A multi-ethnic church. But let's say the Jews, they go to, let's say it's a different scenario. They go and they preached in a synagogue and all of Israel turns to the Lord. Would the Gentiles hear? How hard would it be for a Gentile to look at this renewal movement going on in Israel and wonder, are we in there? We haven't been in there yet. That's what this passage is saying. That's what the scholar is saying. All right, that's the, chrono that's just, that's the chronological. That's, that happened right at the beginning. Now, here's the comprehensive. That's why I call it a mixed. Uh, it's seen in verses 25 and 26. This is the summary of everything that's being said. That's why we had it read. So again, this is a summary. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Here it comes. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That's what we just looked at. Their response to the gospel led to the gospel going to the Gentiles. That's what that's talking about, all right? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The key phrase is, in this way, all Israel will be saved. This seems to be saying the hardening, the hardening that led... Now, remember, this is a judicial hardening. We're going back to Romans 9. You got that? This is not they hardened themselves or God hardened them. This is they hardened themselves and God allowed them to be hardened. Remember, this is Romans 1. This is like, okay, you want to build your life around your career. You want your career to give you your identity you want your career to save you. And, and in Romans 1, the text says, okay, I'll let you build your life around your career. That's what's happening in Romans 1. Well, I want to build my life around marriage, around my kids, around human relationships and the love and affection and the praise and the applause and the pleasing of others. 
okay, I'll let you have what you want. I'll leave you to yourself. That's what hardening means in Romans. Remember, so this is not new data for us. So when we get to this hardening, it's a judicial hardening. It's God allowing self-hardening to take place. God is not the originator, right? That's what's happening here. So the hardening leads to the gospel going to the Gentiles. Because again, I mean, look at this in verse 20. This is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, just so that you hear me. Paul is saying they were broken off because of their unbelief. They resisted the gospel. God allowed them to resist, which leads to the Gentiles hearing the gospel. That's what's happening here. And notice what happens next. This leads to Israel becoming envious and jealous. That's in verse 11. So they respond with resistance. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. They respond. And now what happens is that the Israelites are looking at what's happening to the Gentiles. And this is what Stott says. They want it too. Stott says, he says, they look and they see all the Old Testament realities that they were aware of in their history. And they think about all the Old Testament promises that were mentioned about what God would do when he comes and the Messiah comes. And they start seeing it in this community and they want it. And they turn to Jesus to hear the gospel. This dynamic hardening leading to the gospel going to the Gentiles, to now the gospel working in the Gentiles, Israel looking at that and becoming envious and jealous. This is not of a bad thing. This is of a good thing, of wanting dynamic, genuine, authentic encounters with God himself, so much so that they start turning towards the gospel and hear it and become saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this dynamic that happens between the first coming and the second coming, the way God works in Israel, the way God works in the Gentiles, and the way God works off of them, he's overriding, overmastering. In this way, both Gentile and Jew hear the gospel and are saved. That's how I see it. And good people disagree. In Israel, in our authorship of sin, death, and condemnation, does God ever give up on us? No. Reason number four, the grace reason. Look at verse two. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we're back into Romans 9 stuff. Foreknew here does not mean that God looks down the corridors of time and he has this prior information about you and about your choices and about me and other people and what we will do. And based on this prior information that he has down the corridors of time, he knows you and chooses you. Foreknowledge does not mean that in the Bible. It's never meant that in the Bible. What foreknowledge means is not prior information. It means prior love. That means whenever God thought of Joe Oliver, in the eternity of God in the Trinity, whenever Joe Oliver's name, idea, concept, human, image bearer, Whenever he came into the mind of God, God said, I love him. That's to foreknow. So certainly, God will leave heaven to come get him. 
God is the author of our salvation. That's Roman 9. If, if you're just joining us and you're like, what is he talking about? I, go listen, go back to Romans 9, and then let's talk. Verse 6, but if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Here's the grace reason. This is what the grace reason means. If sinners connect to God on the basis of their works, if sinners connect to God on the basis of their performance, if that's how you begin and that's how I begin and that's how we stay in, we connect based on what we do, how we perform, then of course God gives up on us. Then of course we can fall to the point of no return because if the basis for us connecting to God is how I'm doing and how well you're doing, who has any hope? That's the fourth reason. The fourth reason is that the only way, the only way for God to never give up on us is if our relationship with Him, if our connection to Him from beginning to end is based on what He does. His work. In other words, grace. That is the only way he can never give up on you. That's why Paul so boldly can say, I am, I am the most hardened Israelite on the planet. I am the chief of sinners, and God didn't give up on me. Okay, summary. Israel, our authorship. In Israel's and our authorship of sin, death, and condemnation, does God ever give up on us? No, the most emphatic Greek language construction of being no. It's like no, no, or no, no, no. It's what you say to your kids. No, 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 no! It's that kind of an emphasis, okay? It's that structure. Um, there are four reasons, the Paul reason, the Elijah reason, the redemptive plan reason, and the grace reason. Now just a couple applications for each of those reasons. Here's the first, from the Paul reason. Remember what the Paul reason is? Paul says, listen, I'm one of those Israelites. And this is what he's saying. Here's the application. Let your hardness drive you to Jesus. This is absolutely breathtaking, y'all. Look at verse 7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it. What was Israel seeking? Righteousness. The heart of hardness the heart of your hardness, the heart of my hardness towards God, towards myself, towards others. If you were to cut it open and to dissect it, here it is. You know what it is? Trying to establish a righteousness of our own. Trying to establish our own salvation. Irreligiously, trying to establish my own meaning in life. Trying to establish my own happiness, security, safety, love. The, heart, the center, the, the core heart of hardness is trying to be our own savior. But notice what Paul is saying. It doesn't work. They tried to get it and they failed. Do you see what he's saying? Let your failure drive you to Jesus. Every day you fail in your performance. Every day you fail in pleasing others. Every day you fail in proving yourself. 
Every day you fail in perfecting yourself. Every day you try to defend yourself. Every day you seek to be understood. What he is saying, what Paul is saying to you and me, he's saying, wake up, see it, and let it drive you to Jesus. So the next time you outright get, con- get criticized or rejected by somebody and you feel that deep sense of inner pain where you're almost like you're losing yourself, he's saying, you can't establish a righteousness of your own based on other people's approval. You fail, it fails. Let it drive you to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Let failure drive you to Jesus. That's incredible news. It's breathtaking. So embrace your failure is what he's saying. Embrace it. Start trusting in your failure. The Elijah reason. Sometimes it seems like God's not working. He's not at work at all, right? In our own lives, and this is what the application is here, readjust your vision. Readjust it. I mean, this is the darkest hour in Israel's history other than the exile. This is when Jezebel, it seems like all the prophets of Baal, you had this tremendous, one of the most magnificent outside of the Exodus, I don't know, magnificent displays of God's power, and there's not a renewal, there's not a revival. It looks like it's all over for Israel. It looks like the exile's on its way. Elijah's so defeated, he thought he was bringing in the second, third, fourth, whatever great awakening. He thought he was the one that was going to be doing it. He thought it was happening, and instead it doesn't. And Jezebel says, you puny prophet, I'm coming after you. And a guy that faced a mighty horde of Baal prophets, false prophets, quits runs away. You know what God could have said to him? He could have said to him, you know what, Elijah? I've kept for myself two. Two prophets in all this land. You better run. Elijah, I've kept 7,000 prophets. 7,000 of the most gifted, powerful, sent from me gospel preachers in the land. Open your eyes. Elijah, if they only talk to their wives, that's 4,000 people. If they talk to their kids, that's 21, 28, 35, depending on how many each of these guys have. We are talking about Powerful gospel preachers sent by God to preach grace and to preach the gospel to reach tens of thousands of people, but Elijah thought he was the only one. Paul is saying, do you know this story? Readjust your vision. God is at work at night in the darkest places in the deepest soils of the human heart. And then once you adjust your vision, start praying and acting accordingly. Start praying for yourself and acting accordingly amidst your own troubles. Start praying and acting accordingly, readjusting to this vision with your troubled children, 
Start praying and acting accordingly with your troubled circumstance and your troubled relationship and your troubled ministry to so-and-so or in this particular context. It changes everything. Because God is saying in light of the Elijah reason, I am always at work. Especially when you think I'm not. And especially when you're asleep. (laughs) This is beautiful. From the redemptive plan reason. All right, Israel and the rest of the world. Remember between the first coming and the second coming. How's this happening? Israel's being saved. The rest of the world, Gentiles are being saved. Together. The same way. But there are unique ways in which each hears the gospel. One hears it because it came to them because it was, there was a hardening that went on and God said, okay, they're hardening. They're hardening. I'm hardening. They're going to go in that direction. Gentiles here. Now, this is a little ping pong. The Israelites look at what's going on over here and they're like, man, we want that. And now they start hearing the gospel. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. That's how I take it. So application, I honestly couldn't think of any. <laughs> Get out a chart, do a diagram, check the headlines for rapture news. I don't know. Now there is, there's two. There's one for the Gentiles, all non-Jewish people in verses 18 through 22. Paul basically says, and we read it, don't be arrogant. Because the root, he's saying to those of us that have become Christians, uh, we're here, Right? We've been grafted in, right? But the root is grace. He's saying, don't think because you're grafted in on grace that you now produce the grace. The root produced the branch. You didn't produce the root. That's his argument there. He's basically saying, don't be arrogant. Don't, be, don't get apathetic and complacent. Don't sit there and think that you, know, you got here basically on your performance or your works. And there's this deadly dynamic that goes on with that. It's sometimes when you, when you and I are engaged in functionally, experientially thinking that we connect to God and connect to ourselves and connect to life based on our performance and our works, there are periods when our performance and our works are pretty good. So we feel good, superior, but there's a death spiral in this thing. And that is when your works don't, you plummet into the depths of inferiority and hopelessness and despair because you're dependent on your works and your works just failed you. And this text is saying, don't be arrogant and don't be inferior because it's not about you. It's about grace, God's performance, God's works. You're okay. And therefore, you can see with clarity what needs to happen with Israel. And you see with clarity what needs to happen in your own family and your own relationships and so on and so forth. Now, for Israelites, Paul says in verse 7, start trusting your failures. So if you're an Israelite, what he's saying to you very, very specifically, God has a specific word to you. Start trusting in your failure to obtain your own righteousness. Start trusting in that failure and let it drive you to the only one who is righteous for you. that the most righteous human being in the history of the world has come to earth and he came for unrighteous people who fail at trying to be righteous. You can't obtain what you're seeking. There's no such thing as an achieved righteousness unless you're talking about Jesus. For you and me, there's only a received one. Start trusting in your failure. Isn't that good news? Anyone can do that, right? You can walk out here today and say, 
man, I, got, I, I can trust in my failures today. Sweet, because you're going to have loads of them, right? Let them drive you to Jesus. All right, from the grace reason. If sinners connect to God on the basis of their works or their performance, then, then, does, then God does give up on us. Here's the point. Jesus did connect to God on the basis of messed up, broken, faulty performances and works. In other words, Jesus did have that kind of relationship with God based on works, based on your works, based on my works. He connected with God based on our dirty, broken performances and works. So he got rejected. And so he fell to the point of no return. So we never would and never will. And we can rise. And the application is build your life around that. And when that gets clear to our minds and real to our hearts, functionally, experientially, you know what happens? For from him and through him and to him are everything. That's why this doxology is at the end. Genuine worship only comes from and only generated by getting grace deep down into your bones.